Psalm 8 for our first reading. Psalm 8, verse 1, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God to the chief musician upon Getit, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passest through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So we learn uh, in the first instance that the psalm is to the chief musician. That tells us uh, whether it's Jejuthun or Kenaniah, whichever one of those two men it was that were alive during David's day, that this has a real historical referent, and that real historical referent indicates that it was to be sung in the worship of God, in the public worship of God. Secondly, it is upon Getit. Uh, sometimes in Scripture we will read about a man that is called a Gittite. Remember reading that? That means that they're from Gath, where Goliath was from. And so this has created some interesting possibilities for understanding. It, it's hard to know uh, dogmatically, but perhaps this is a this is a tune that was written by David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, when he was in Gath after he had perhaps slain the giant, Goliath of Gath. Or perhaps it is a, um, it's a song of praise upon the, the uh, victory of the armies of Israel after uh, Goliath was slain. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in what? All the earth, not just Israel, but all the earth. Um, <clears throat> so it could be a rejoicing at the death of Goliath. Uh, there are two other psalms that bear this same title as well, Psalm 81 and 84. And, and in Psalm 81 and 84, it is quite possible that the men that, uh, that wrote those tunes, that were inspired by God to write those sorry, not those tunes, but those lyrics, used that same tune that was already well known among them. Right? The tune that came from Gath, the Getit. Okay, so it's hard to be dogmatic on such things. This psalm is quoted four times in the New Testament. In Matthew 21, 16, it's quoted uh, as the praise of the lambs of Christ, the children that will call upon his name. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, 6 through 9, it is an unmistakably Christological reference. In 1 Corinthians 15, 27, again, the reference is to Christ. And Ephesians 1, 22, thou hast put all things under his feet, that is, Christ's feet. And so once again, we sing this psalm with one eye on David and one eye on Christ. David will, as Jonathan Edwards put it, personate Christ as he writes this this psalm. All right, so it begins, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. The, um, The controversy among commentators has to do with whether or not the second half of that verse is a question or a declarative statement. Right? Who? Who has set thy glory above the heavens? That would be the question. Or, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name, and thou hast set thy glory above the heavens. I tend toward the latter of those two interpretations. But notice what happens here. We have the excellency of the name of God. And what is the name of God, children? It's anything whereby he makes himself known. It's God's true person. And so it is really summed up in his own self-revelation to us. And I want you to see how he started out the psalm by doing that. O Jehovah our Adonai, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And so the covenant name is used, Jehovah, that he's the ever-living, promise-keeping, covenant-honoring God. That he will always be there to perform all his righteousness. And he is our master. That's what Adonai means. So, O Jehovah, our Adonai, O ever-living, covenant-keeping God, who is also our master, our leader, our authority. And so when we take this psalm upon our lips, we confess like we do in our membership vows that Jesus Christ is our sovereign Lord. O Lord, our Lord. He is not just Jehovah, Right? And Jehovah often stands for the triune God. But that triune God is also our master, our Lord. So we confess submission to him when we sing this psalm. And anytime we, we see that kind of terminology in scripture, we are confessing his mastery over us and that we are his humble servants. Just remember the address of the Apostle Paul to the churches where he would say over and again, that he is the bond servant of Christ. Whatever you command me, Lord, that is my duty. All right, but notice that this master of ours and this Jehovah of ours, he is not a um, he's not paltry. He's not a hard master. He is a his name is excellent, majestic, magnificent. It is large. It is. It is beyond comprehension. His name is great in all the earth. His name is excellent in all the earth. And beyond the earth, he has set his glory above the heavens. Above in rank. Above in importance. Now, we've all done this, haven't we? We want to get to the darkest place we can at the right time of year so that we can see that zipper in the sky. Have you ever seen that, that zipper in the sky? The, you know, as you're looking through the edge of the Milky Way galaxy and how that, that zipper just kind of goes over the top from one end to the other. 
And we look at that, doesn't it? It, it kind of takes your breath away. It's just an amazing sight. Or some of the close-ups of maybe the uh, Hubble telescope and, and other, other uh, uh, devices that we have now orbiting the Earth that are up above the, the light pollution, you know, and so on. Is that we see, it, it, as far as we've been able to see, <coughs> and we say, wow, what glory is in the heavens, don't we? God's glory is above that. It's beyond that. You have a, a whole cadre of folks now that are, that are glorying in the world. What does the psalmist say here? What does David tell us? His name is excellent in all the earth and his glory is above the heavens. Don't get caught over-admiring the creation. Admire the creator far more. It's okay to admire his creation. It's okay. As long as you do what David does a little bit later on in this, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. We we have to remember who David is talking about there and how rightly to consider those wonderfully glorious things and God's glory being above that as their creator and their sustainer. All right, so now notice that this God of ours, this Lord of ours, he doesn't require the pomp of men. He doesn't require the recognition of men. No, he'll take his praise out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. He has ordained praise. Well, this is just one of those statements that reminds us, doesn't it, of what we learned last week in the morning sermon when we talked about what Jesus means when he says, you must become as a child when you come to me. Right? With credulity and dependence and provision and supply and resting and, and snuggling, if, if I can use that term with God, drawing near to him. And all of those wonderfully descriptive terms that teach us proper uh, filial reverence fear and love toward God our Father. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. That is, that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the strong things of the world. That thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Um, If you watch any sort of uh, sporting contest... You will see that one, one combatant, one contestant studies not the strengths but the weaknesses of his opponent in order to know how to attack. He wants to attack him at his weakest portion, doesn't he? Notice what God does. He uses the weakest things to confound the strongest things. To show that his weakness is greater than man's strength. To advance his name. All right, so now in verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Um, there are two things going on here, I think, for the, for the bulk of the psalm that remains. And that is, like I said, we're to have one eye on David, or may I say it this way, one eye on mankind, and then one eye on Christ. 
As far as the eye on mankind is concerned, David will compare the universe to a person. And he'll say, when I think of all that you have made, Lord, how is it that you pay attention to men? It's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? That this great, big, strong, powerful world that we live on, this planet, that there are times where we might, um, uh, like we used to do sometimes, we would vacation in Northern California, and you could walk out on the beach uh, at, at a particular time of year, and you could look as far south and as far north, facing, of course, west, and as far as you can see, there's just beach and ocean. And you can learn to feel pretty small doing that. I remember a couple of nights when, uh, back in my younger days when I was rock climbing, I spent a couple of nights alone in the desert. You know, the great big wide desert. I was in a little campground and I remember hearing things. And What is that? How small we feel sometimes, right? Notice this is exactly what David does here, but he does it on a much grander scale. And he does it as far as we are able to travel, uh, the distance that we're able to traverse with God's perspective instead of ours. God has made this whole wide world and sustains it. Not only this world, if you think of it in the context of this planet, but the world itself, the universe. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And notice how this is the exact opposite of the mindset of our day, which says that man rules over the universe. Not really. Not really. And we, and we say that, don't we, to assuage ourselves of the fear of, of what we actually know. And that is that this universe is a wide and scary place for the likes of men. It is unthinking, uncaring, unfeeling. In the mindset of the atheist, the universe is his worst enemy. It will demand his demise without ever thinking about it. David says, let's keep that mindset, but let's put it in its proper perspective. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? So let us take stock. Let us remember the Lord's heavens, the Lord's moon and stars, the Lord's creation. And in the midst of that, let us remember the kind condescension that God has exhibited toward men such as we are fallen and corrupted in that he has first made us in his image and second, he is making us again in his image in redemption. But now I think David is turning and, and he's taking the words of a prophet upon his lips here when he says, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. And here I think what David does is he gives us a really nice theology lesson 
And that is that, first of all, he will speak of Adam, but he will not stop at Adam. The New Testament tells us, doesn't it, in Hebrews chapter 2, that these words were spoken of Christ. That it is Christ who was made a little lower, or maybe for a little while lower than the angels. And who being exalted as having a name that is above all names, is crowned with glory and honor, and all things are under his dominion. And so, yeah, yeah, God did do that with Adam at the, at the first, but Adam lost that right through his fall. Christ alone is the one to whom these things can be said in their fullest sense. And the New Testament validates that for us. And so this is indeed a, a psalm of Christ teaching us that not only when we say, what is man, but then we must look at our Savior who is God-man and remember His condescension to take that, what is man, upon Himself. Although the Creator and the Sustainer, it could be said as easily of Christ <coughs> that the moon and the stars are His, the heavens are His, the earth is His, the fullness is His, it's all His. Yet, for the sake of his people, his special people, his elect, he took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, made for a little while lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, and remains for all time and eternity, God and man, in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. And that for his people. And so when we ask the question... What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Let us also answer that question with the rounding out of this passage in the New Testament. That man is something only as God loves him and cares for him and saves him. That the worth that we have is not an intrinsic worth being human beings, although there is Something there, though marred in the image of God, but the truest worth that we have is the worth that we have in Christ. It's not the worth that you can muster up by thinking good thoughts about yourself and being positive. That's not it. It's not by, by uh, pressing your virtues and suppressing your vices. No. It's the worth that you have in Christ who was made for a little while lower than the angels for us. That's the worth. That's the comfort. That is the, that's the reason we can get out of bed in the morning. Right there. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.